Hello, listeners. I'm Rachel Wong with Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode, our host, Amjo Hall, sits down with Ebony Magnus, the new head of the Samuel and Francis Bellsberg Library at the SFU Vancouver campus. They discuss some core questions related to libraries, including equal access to technology, value distinctions between different types of archives, and continued community engagement. Welcome to Below the Radar. We're delighted to have Ebony Magnus with us, the new head of the Bellsburg Library at SFU Vancouver downtown. Welcome, Ebony. Hi. Ebony, you're walking into the shoes of Karen Maratz, who was head of the Bellsburg Library from when it opened in 1989 until 2019, so a nice 30-year tenure. <laughs> so based on um, averages and in, in history, that would mean you're going to be working here until 2049. But wondering if you can talk a, a little bit about what drove you to apply for this position and come and work in, in Vancouver at SFU downtown. Yeah, big shoes to fill, for sure. There were a lot of things that drove me towards this position. For one, I'm from BC and I left BC about six years ago with the intention of always coming back. SFU is an institution I've always kind of known of just growing up in BC and respected and been interested in. So it was on my radar as a place I may want to work, though the Vancouver campus wasn't actually, possibly because it did have someone in the position for 30 years. So it wasn't one of those ones you saw kind of on the market. But SFU as an institution, the whole engaged university thing, just kind of the institutional values appealed to me. The library itself came out last year with a really strong statement on equity, diversity and inclusion that was super encouraging to me as an academic librarian in Canada. And that in large part drew me to wanting to work for the institution. The position itself at SFU Vancouver, I'm learning well, I'm still pinching myself. I kind of think I've got the best gig being able to be down at SFU Vancouver. There's just such a life, like a, such a vitality to the community down here. And and I think it is really interesting to be coming in after someone has done so much great work for the past 30 years and coming in on the 30th anniversary. Anniversaries are great times to kind of look back at the successes and also look forward toward what we want to do next. And so I think I'm in an interesting place where people are really appreciative of everything that's happened at SFU Vancouver, at Bellsburg over the last three decades, but also excited to see what we're going to do. Yeah. And when you think about libraries, there was sort of the the vision of them as public institutions, city libraries around different parts of rural BC. I grew up in Williams Lake. I remember going to library, accessing newspapers and the, and the books, particularly going home. But the nature of libraries in terms of how they can be a public institution in the the present and the future is is changing over time. You see, you know, Vancouver Public Library now has some podcasting booths and media pieces, and also in the social inequalities we have out in the public as well. Being public institutions, there's really you know a desire for accessibility for these spaces as well. And so there's been a kind of changing nature of what libraries are and what librarianship in a way can be and what's being asked of it in a way. And I'm wondering how you think about some of these challenges and opportunities about your own approach to libraries. Yeah, I, so I also grew up in a small town in the interior. And actually, my mom worked in libraries when I was younger. And so, and I just spent a lot of time in libraries. And I think in some ways, 
we are seeing this visibility of the change in libraries and how they are engaging with communities and what they're doing. But I think a lot of that has always been deeply rooted. I mean, my parents at times dropped me and my three brothers off at the library and then went grocery shopping because they didn't have the means to get a babysitter for that. Right. And so that probably was not approved of by the library staff. But I think libraries, especially in rural communities or smaller communities, have always engaged with the community members in that way and tried to provide supports. I think increasingly libraries are expanding their their offerings, and which is both really exciting, but also can be a little bit dangerous. I think not dangerous, but just there are libraries in the States, public libraries that now have social workers, which is good and responsible to actually bring in those professionals as opposed to librarians themselves trying to kind of enact that role in a community. So I think there is this balance between understanding your community and understanding their needs and understanding the limits of your capacity to meet those needs. And if the library itself can't do it, how do they partner with other community organizations? But yeah, libraries have always, I mean, well, not always, but are largely recognized as being rooted in accessibility and equality and leveling the playing field for access to information and and resources and spaces and I think we're still trying to do that and as disparity grows in society and community and as we see things like new technologies kind of coming into play libraries are trying to move into those spaces to again level the playing field when it comes to those as opposed to just kind of books and space. Mm-hmm. When I look at different spaces even just being here at 312 Main Street where we're sort of kitty corner from the Carnegie Center Library the Strathcona Library is close by in the building itself here we have the archive of the United Church of Canada for BC that includes the Japanese United Church so a lot of archives relating to the internment of the Japanese community the Union of BC Indian Chiefs has their archive here they have a really interesting ethics policy. The use of the archive is tied to support of Indigenous movements. And so you have also these types of archives that function outside of the library as well. And also the forms in which archives or things get given to the library come in different forms. Well, and who gets to give those things and whose archives are considered valuable, right? And who has access then to those archives. Yeah, and, and imagine in terms of the changing nature of research, ask these types of questions. And so when you think about graduate students or professors or community members coming in to access the library, um, how has that changed in terms of people actually making use of the spaces and the archives and the materials that a library offers? On the topic of archives, there are people far better suited to discuss it than I am. But I will say, I think we are in the midst of change and I don't know that we've gotten there yet. And and some of my questions informed by very smart archivists that I know around archives come from, yeah, that question of whose material are we recognizing as authoritative and whose material are we archiving and recognizing as important? Because often anyone in a marginalized community or from an underrepresented background, we don't have their stories in our archives. And even if we do, who's then processing those and who's interpreting them and and arranging them? And then there's the problem of who are we providing the access to? Because in some cases, majority populations shouldn't necessarily have access to that material that's documenting the lives of people who have historically been oppressed. So I think I lost the thread of your original question because that's a big tension right now in the field about building archives 
for communities, being responsible to those communities. And this is where we get into conflict, or not conflict, but we see some tension in the values that we espouse in the profession, right? So there's the value of access to information, but then measuring that against the privilege to protect certain information of certain people. Yeah, I guess the, in a way the fallback and the default ends up being a fairly normative narrative. And even when you look at the city of Vancouver, the original archives were done by one person, Major Matthews, from his personal connection that essentially created the, the Vancouver archives. And that's certainly done from a very particular point of view. I live around the corner from a park named after this guy, it's a bit bizarre. And also I imagine uh, libraries as well are going through changes in the types of technology that people are utilizing inside of the spaces in terms of access to the internet and these types is one aspect of it in a library. It's probably a different type of uh, form, but how do you see that changing the user experience in terms of the relationship to technology that libraries are now implementing and using and making available publicly too? There was this interesting article that just came out in the Atlantic a few days ago, and I think I think it annoyed many librarians. The premise of the article was just that students, and this was about academic libraries, but that students just want study space and books. They don't want all this fancy, shiny, flashy technology that we've got in place, which I think was kind of a limited perspective that they're coming from on that. But going back to what I was saying earlier, I do think technologies are coming out and they're obviously available to certain people before they're available to others. So that's part of the library's mission, making them available to everyone. But again, it's depending on who your community is that may or may not actually meet their needs. So I think we up at the Bennett Library at SFU in Burnaby, we are opening this media and maker commons. So it's a makerspace. But so there's, I mean, there's tons of cool stuff in there. There's a letterpress, there's a sewing machine, there's a million 3D printers. But in designing and kind of thinking about how that space will operate, there's recognition that makerspaces themselves have been a bit exclusionary to some groups or have felt unwelcoming to certain people which is in part why we're why it was named, I think, a Media and Maker Commons. And the person programming that and kind of behind it has reached out to a lot of groups on campus. I think there was possibly like a choir group that he reached out to. And just so going beyond the kind of robotics groups and the STEM groups and stuff that would typically use a space like that. The idea of libraries providing access and you know getting that shiny technology and giving it to students is really cool and important, but I think it can't just be done without consideration of who your communities are and how they may or may not feel they have, they are welcome to access that, even if it's in place. Hmm. Yeah. And and I guess librarians, the librarianship, there's been a long history of access to free information, getting around paywalls. I know SFU has this community scholars program that nonprofit organizations can access and get around paywalls to access uh, research that they're doing. And wondering, you know, what are other ways in which you think about community engagement as it relates to the library? You mentioned a few things already, but what's your approach to community engagement in the library? Oh, that's a big question. I'm still figuring that out here at SFU Vancouver. I think for me, so prior to stepping into this role, I was working as an assessment and user experience librarian. So a lot of what I did was really just trying to understand the community and how they engage with the library and then what kind of impact the library has on their success or otherwise. Some of that used to kind of improve the experience within the library and then other times kind of evidence used to prove things about the library. So for me, 
I come to that community engagement question with my own question of who is the community and what are their needs and kind of how are those needs being met by other community partners and in what ways can the library step in to support that? So, I mean, the library is already kind of embedded in a lot of the stuff going on at SFU Vancouver, you know, partnering with Public Square and partnering with the different departments down here and supporting events that are going on. In a very minimal way, I think we can do that with resources, like you said, with information. But I think we can also look at the way that we can open our spaces to people. I guess going back to the information thing, the way that we can also ensure that voices which wouldn't have come to the fore in the past are given prominence, kind of uplifting the voices of people who would have otherwise been marginalized. And sometimes that means going beyond the quote-unquote traditional Western research products like journal articles and books. So... Those are kind of the things on my mind for engaging with the communities down here. And historically, libraries, particularly, let's say more so public libraries, are also places where groups in the community book space and utilize them. And sometimes this can be like a source of tension. I can remember in the 90s when white supremacist organizations book space and the BC Civil Liberties Association you know, supported their use of that space, but it can be very polarizing in communities. Without getting into sort of um, specifics, these are obviously evolving conversations and differences of opinion within the field of librarians as well. And wondering if you can contextualize some of these conversations and approaches that people are taking to these types of questions. On the one hand, openness and access, but also these questions of, of human rights and marginalized communities also feeling attacked by these kinds of policies as well. Right. Yeah. So librarianship is this profession kind of steeped in values like freedom of information and open access and equity of access. But the conversations that come up kind of around events or room bookings, et cetera, are the, I guess, around the tensions that exist between those values that we, you know, maybe two different values that we kind of cleave to as a profession. And yet there's tensions within them. And I think because of libraries are viewed as this as a public good, right? And in some ways are considered neutral because they're open to all. And yet those values, even though they're acknowledged as generally good, they are still values. They are value-laden statements that kind of give credence to one perspective over another. And so I think libraries, we do come up against this tension of trying to be open to all, but recognizing that and opening our doors to some, we may be closing them to others. And I think we have to get a lot more comfortable with that in libraries and stop trying to play this neutrality card. That I think, if anything, that's what makes it more difficult for us to engage in these conversations, that we try to maintain a neutral stance. And, and I'm saying, like, we and generalizing a lot right now. This is just kind of broad strokes. But, yeah, if we're trying to maintain this neutral stance, it's just impossible to do. So... I would rather see us as a profession and it won't be the same across the profession and across individuals and across institutions, but I would rather see us weigh the tensions across the values that we do espouse in the profession and take positions when, when it makes sense to do so. And I think being transparent about that as well, not trying to kind of cover it up or couch it in, like, oh, we're going to let this group in because intellectual freedom versus, well, no, we're going to exclude this group because human rights. So I think we should just start making the decision one way or another and accepting it and and kind of owning 
owning the tensions that exist there. Yeah, we've had uh, situations where, say, anti-vaxxer organizations are booking space at the university as a commercial booking, but the university gets criticized uh, internally um, allowing these because of the connection to the university. So it gets gets very complicated, really. really yeah, quickly. and I mean, we have academic freedom at this institution, and that is something that should be preserved. But when the arguments that are kind of being upheld by this academic freedom question the humanity of certain individuals you have to then question how far academic freedom could or should go in my mind but that's a big massive an issue <laughs> <laughs> so there's you know lots of trends and new ideas in what could be called progressive librarianship i hear terms like trauma informed librarianship and and wondering if you could characterize or contextualize some examples of things that people are doing elsewhere that you're really excited by in terms of experiments in libraries and how they're connecting with communities and bringing new people in and, and addressing issues of accessibility. Yeah, there are so many different kind of veins of librarianship and study within librarianship that are looking in that direction. So there's literally a progressive librarian skill. And there's a whole movement called critical librarianship where people are trying to take more critical discourse to kind of unpack what it is we do and and who's privileged and who's not in the work that we do. In terms of specific work that's going on that's really exciting to me, anyone who's heard me talk before has heard me recommend this work, but I will do it again. So Montana State University, their user experience department in their library is doing some really great work around indigenous participatory design. Scott Young is the user experience librarian there, and he worked with Native American students to develop this indigenous participatory design toolkit that uses indigenous ways of thinking and knowing to describe students' successes in academia and then also the challenges they face. And then they've come up with all of these activities that you can use to engage communities to kind of get at these things, which then leads to kind of service development in libraries, right? But it's very much from a power sharing and participatory standpoint. I think a lot of people in libraries who are doing user experience work pick up methods that look like participatory design, but don't always get at the true power sharing, which is really hard to do when you're working in a higher education institution. But I think Scott's project gets close to it. He does a lot of work also with Haley Fargo from Penn State, who has done similar work with first-generation college students. There's also this think tank group, or I don't know how to characterize them. It's called Ithaca SNR, but they do a lot of research around the way that people engage with libraries and higher ed. And they just released this report. They've done this study with seven community colleges where they were interviewing tons of students and asking them questions about the challenges they face and asking the students how they define success. So often in libraries, when we're trying to kind of prove our worth, we're looking at institutional definitions of success. So completion rates or retention rates or graduation rates or grade point average for students. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, just kind of accepting those measurements as the way we characterize quote unquote success. But the study that Ithaca's done they're asking the students themselves. And for some students, it's like getting to class on time or getting a D in this class or connecting with other people on my campus who are interested in similar things, right? And so it raises this question of accountability in the work that we're doing. Who are we accountable to? Are we accountable to our administrators or governments? Or are we accountable to the students who are kind of central to our mission can we be accountable to both? What does it look like if those accountabilities come into conflict with one another? That's where my mind is right those now. Those are big questions. Yeah. 
And is there anything else you wanted to talk about, future of libraries or ideas that you've, I know you've just started your job just a little little while ago, but ideas that you'd like to see experimented with at SFU? I mean, yeah, I'm still kind of getting the lay of the land and figuring things out. Going back to some of my excitement around this position, just the idea that you walk out the doors of Harbor Center and, you know, you go a few blocks east and you're in the downtown east side and you go a few blocks west and you're like on Robson, right downtown, right? So I love the idea of Bellsburg Library being at that junction and I'm excited (laughs) about the challenges that that presents. I think we have responsibility to a lot of different communities with interests that are expressed in different ways. And so I'm really excited about figuring out how to engage all of them and to confront the tensions that are going to arise out of that naturally. I didn't know about the Community Engaged Scholars Program before starting here, and I'm learning a lot more about that program and about how the library is supporting that. And I'm so excited about the idea of bringing those voices who are doing really important work but have because of the kind of infrastructure and bureaucracy of higher ed, have been excluded sometimes from the dialogue. So I'm really excited about bringing those voices into dialogue, whether it's inside the library or kind of adjacent to the library. Yeah. Ebony, thank you so much for joining us on Blow the Radar. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Ebony Magnus for joining us on this week's episode of Below the Radar. You can learn more about the Bellsburg Library as well as the other SFU library branches and the different events and programming that goes on by checking out their website. We'll leave a link to it in the episode description below. On our next episode, we talk to Svetlana Matvienko, an assistant professor of critical media analysis in SFU's School of Communication. She talks with Am about the concept of cyber war and digital militarism, which she explores in her research and book, Cyber War and Revolution, Digital Subterfuge in Global Capitalism, with Nick Dyer-Witherford. Nick Dyer-Witherford and I were very interested and troubled by the events that were happening in Ukraine. That was the Maidan protest. So we were following what was happening there, this mobilization of people, which is, again, a digital mobilization. And uh, recently, something like this was happening around the world. And Ukraine was a kind of a next country where people mobilize. As always, thank you to the team who puts this podcast together, including myself, Rachel Wong, Paige Smith, Fiorella Pinillos, and Kathy Fang. David Steele is the composer of our theme music. And of course, thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. 